We are going to be in Psalm 127 tonight, so if you'd open your Bibles there. The title is Like Arrows. I was praying about where we would head on our Wednesday nights. We've been doing a series in the book of Psalms, selected Psalms, and I felt drawn to Psalm 127, and I think for good reason. You can see that we have an evening happening with a movie night that's called Like Arrows. It comes from this particular psalm. We have a class coming up on parenting. Uh, I would be in the same category as Tanya. My children are all grown and adults and have uh, facial hair, impressive facial hair, I must say, at least some of them, but we won't go there tonight. <laughs> but anyway, but um, it's a blessing to be a dad. I will tell you, uh, having the privilege to raise three sons and be involved in their lives and to watch them grow and watch God shape them and get to identify their giftings and see them head in the direction that God had for them is amazing. It's humbling because we all realize as parents, for those of you who are parents or grandparents in the room, that none of us ever have it all figured out. You think you have parenting figured out when you're not a parent. Then you become a parent, and it becomes very apparent to you that you don't have it figured out. And so I think tonight, taking just that track of humility, we'd realize that we all can fall short in this area. We all could use all the help we can get. And if you're not a parent tonight, or if you never become a parent, you still will have influence on somebody's life, hopefully as a spiritual influence in their life. And this psalm is a very short one. It's really all about this topic of what you build on really is going to affect everything in your life. And it will not just be your parenting. It will include your marriage. It will include business. It will include relationships outside your family. What you build on really matters. And this theme does run throughout Scripture. And we have uh, just five verses to read together tonight. I'd like to read them. If you are physically able to stand, would you stand to your feet? We'll read them together and then break it down. Psalm 127, you'll notice at the top of the psalm, a song of a sense of Solomon. We'll come back to that title in a moment. Here's the psalm. Psalm 127, verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For he, that's God, gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, verse 3, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows, and there's the title of the family life class and tonight's title. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. You may be seated. Father, as we have read your word, may your word read us tonight, because the beauty of the Bible is that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces, and it does the reading. We think we're reading it, but it's actually reading us. And so search my heart, O oh God, and see if there any, be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. An honest prayer is to, to say, Lord, every time the Bible is open, let it be a searchlight into my heart that you might do the surgery that's needed to make me more like you. 
And I know on this Wednesday night, those who are watching via live stream, those who have entered into this place, there is a hunger in our souls to know you, to know the power of your resurrection, and even to know the fellowship of your sufferings. We want to be more like you, so please do your work tonight. We are moldable, shapeable, Lord. We have ears to hear. Speak, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name and his, for, for his glory, all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, you'll notice uh, at the top of the psalm, you have a song of ascents, and uh, Psalms 120 through 134 are called the songs of ascent. Remember, all the psalms are songs, so they were sung, and there are particular divisions within the book of psalms. There's 150 psalms, but there's divisions and even books within the book of psalms. And there are some that believe that the songs of ascent were actually their own individual book. So you know how maybe for some of you who grew up in church, you might have a hymnal, or you might have a little praise booklet that was created for a certain occasion, whether it be vacation Bible school or some other, maybe it was a theme for a particular holiday. Well, the songs of ascent were for that particular purpose, and they were really utilized for the pilgrimages to the Holy Land, namely to Israel, during the three major feasts. So no matter where you lived, whether you lived in Israel up in the north in the Galilee region, or you, maybe you lived outside of the nation of Israel, if you were able-bodied, you were supposed to come for the three major holidays or feast days laid out in Leviticus 23. Now, there are seven feasts for Israel, but three major feasts that you were supposed to sojourn or pilgrim, pilgrim, make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for. They are Passover in the spring. Now, that's the season that we have just been in. Pentecost in the summer. And that's 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. So basically, just a couple months after East, what we would call Easter weekend is the Feast of Pentecost. And that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church in Acts chapter 2. And then in the fall, there's the Feast of Tabernacles. And that uh, that's a reminder for the Jewish people of how they made the tents as they sojourned over those 40 years in the wilderness. But there's a future looking to that when God will tabernacle among his people. And he says, I will dwell among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So the feasts were seen as dress rehearsals, but they're also seen as anticipatory for things that are ahead. And so you can think of, for example, when we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and some of you have done that, you've gone into maybe a, a setting. Some of you went to actually to Rabbi Robert's uh, Tabernacle celebration. Were you there? Anybody go? A few of you went. And they made a sukkah. Everybody know what a sukkah is? A sukkah is a tent or a tabernacle decorated with fruit and this is something that they do. They set up a shelter, a temporary shelter, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And ultimately, that's fulfilled in the person of Jesus who tabernacled among us, John 1.14. And ultimately, in the future, when God will be with us and we will see him face to face. And so these holidays look back and they also look forward. And these particular psalms, Psalms 120 through 134, are also known as the songs of degrees, or a song of degrees, and a song for the goings up. And it is interesting to note that this group of psalms follows the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, which is all about God's holy word, God's holy law, and it directing our steps. 
And if you've ever studied Psalm 119, you know it's all about the word of God and the will of God. And it's been well said that if you come out of Psalm 119 with a major theme, it will lead you to worship the God of Israel. You will desire to go and be near him. In the ancient world, to be near him was to go to Jerusalem. And even the Ethiopian eunuch, remember, sojourned, and he was from another country and really didn't have the growing up in the Jewish faith. And he came to worship the God of Israel at one of the feasts. And it was Philip who had a chance from Isaiah 53 to approach the chariot and preach Jesus from the very passage that he was reading. And so there are a lot of people who have sojourned to the Holy Land even today without a standing temple because they feel a pull towards that land. And there's good reason for it. God said he would write his name in Jerusalem forever. And forever means forever. And so there is an interesting draw, even for those of us who would be considered Gentiles, to go to that Holy Land. And I've been there twice. And I know some of you are interested the next time we go. And we don't have a date yet, but we'll... We'll keep you up to date on that. And so the people, as they sojourned to the Holy Land, they would sing these songs almost as if they were songs for a road trip. And that's literally what they were because people would travel for miles. Sometimes they would walk. Sometimes they would take you know, beasts of burden. They would travel in large caravans. Jesus would have done this when he was little. Remember, he was there at the Passover when he was 12. That's one of the snapshots we actually have from the early life of Jesus. When he was 12 years old, his family had come there for the Passover. And he was in the temple And he was talking theology with some of the great minds there in Jerusalem. And so this book, this Song of Ascents, were songs to sojourn and to prepare your heart to worship the king at the major feasts. And I would submit to you, there's an application point right here, and it's this, that when you're getting ready to come to a worship service, whether it's a Wednesday night worship service or a Sunday morning or something like that, that you might want to throw on some worship in the car or put on a sermon, or maybe do a combination of both to prepare your heart for what you're about to receive. See, it's not just about flipping the switch when you walk through those doors. And I know sometimes you guys struggle just to get through those doors, and I completely understand that. It's like everything I could do just to get here, I had to beat off the beast of the 91 freeway. And then this, and that, and that, and this, and you know, The dogs were carrying away children at the house, and who knows, everything seems to go awry sometimes when you're trying to get your spiritual house in order. But I would tell you that the more you prepare your heart to come into this place, the more you'll be ready to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Now, Psalm 127 is within the songs of ascent, and they literally mean the ascent up to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is a city on a hill. You always go up. To Jerusalem. So as people ascended towards the very land of Israel and then ascended up to the temple and up the steps of the temple, this is when these songs would be sung. So not only on the road trip, but once you got into Jerusalem, people would sing these songs. And they would be the hymns that you would get used to if you grew up in this kind of setting. And the hymns, uh, or the songs here, this one is given credit to Solomon. I was reading Spurgeon on this, and Spurgeon thinks that maybe David wrote this for Solomon. That's an interesting thought. Solomon obviously wrote a lot of the Bible. 
We have Proverbs of Solomon. We have the book of Ecclesiastes that's from Solomon in his older years. We have the Song of Songs that's also from Solomon. And there's one other psalm that's credited to Solomon, that's Psalm 72, for those of you who are interested. But this is the only other psalm that's given credit to Solomon. And the question is, why? Why did Solomon write this psalm? We don't know for sure. But we know that ultimately, the first line, unless the Lord builds the house, it's been pointed out that that could be a reference to the temple. And Solomon was the one who built the temple. Now, David had on his heart to build a house for God. He said, I dwell in this cedar house, but there's no house for God. And he had it on his heart. And ultimately, David was a man of war and a man of blood. So God said, you're not going to build it, but your son is going to build it. And your son, Solomon, whose name really means peaceful, he's going to build it. And Solomon did take on that building project. And he dedicated the house of God. And this is recorded in 2 Chronicles, starting in chapter 5. And the glory was so thick it was amazing. God's presence descended on this house. And God promised to be you know, there. And he said, if my people later, two chapters later, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, if they will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And my eyes and my ears will be attentive to prayer offered in this place. And so that house was dedicated to the glory of God and it's called the Solomonic Temple. It's the first physical structure outside of a tent that was built for God's dwelling. And God said, that's where I will dwell. And I will meet with the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And the people would come and worship. And they would sing these songs, these uh, particular psalms that I pointed out to you. As they ascended up to Jerusalem, it would be kind of like a, you could call it a celebratory atmosphere as they would go up to the house of God three times a year, and they would worship. But here's the thing. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Now, I'm going to submit to you that even though I think that this could be a reference to the house of God, and Solomon was the builder, you could say, of the house of God, this, is, this applies to any house. This applies to your house or your home or your business or whatever endeavor you pursue in life, unless the Lord builds it, it's going to be vain. See that word vain in verse 1? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. That word vanity is a word that appears over and over again in one of Solomon's other books, and it's called the book of Ecclesiastes. And he talked about how life was vanity without God. And he paints a picture of life under the sun, S-U-N, the physical sun. And basically, the premise of the book is if you live without God, if you live detached from God, if you're a man like Solomon, who the Lord said, here's a blank check. I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon doesn't ask for riches or fame. He asks for what? He asks for wisdom. And so he's the wisest man that ever lived, save Jesus. And people come from all these different lands to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And yet, Solomon realized something because he began to endeavor to do things detached from God. He lived a life, you could say, devoid of God. It would be like someone who grew up in the church, tasted of the spiritual gifts, worshiped the Lord, went to Sunday school, VBS, and somehow walked away from the Lord and began to experience life outside of God or detached from God. 
This is the premise of the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me give you a taste of it. This is uh, Ecclesiastes chapter two. And uh, here's what Solomon says about life detached from God. He says, I said to myself, this is Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. If you want to throw it up on the screen for me. Come now, I will test you with pleasure, he said. So enjoy yourselves. And behold, that too, it too was futility. I said, laughter, it's madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. I thought, man, I can drink, I can drink to excess, and I can still do smart things because I'm a wise man. And how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works, Ecclesiastes 2.4. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself uh, from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I, I bought male and female slaves. I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Verse 8. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers, the pleasures of men, many concubines. And then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not hold one withhold from withhold my heart from any pleasure for my heart was pleased because of all my labor and this was my reward for all my labor I've worked so hard I deserve it thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and all the labor which I had exerted and behold all was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun I built and built and built some more. I drank and drank and drank some more. I got people to come in and entertain me. I didn't, I didn't hold back one thing. If my eyes saw it, I said, that's what I'm going to take. But unless the Lord builds the house, you labor in vain. I can't tell you how many people have tasted the depth of vanity. And vanity is a Hebrew word which means empty, fruitless, powerless. You know, you, you dive into the deep end of sin thinking that you're going to find something there. And yes, it, sin can be pleasurable for a season, but in the end, what does it lead to? It leads to death, but I would argue as well, it leads to emptiness, a sense of vainness and emptiness. It's just like, it just doesn't satisfy and so this is, this is the meaning of that word vain, and it's repeated, I think, some three times in a couple verses. Empty, false, nothingness, worthlessness. You can never quite get there. You can never quite satisfy. You can never quite get back to that original high. And a lot of people who talk about addiction talk about that first experience with a chemical or something like that and how powerful a moment it was. And then the rest of the time, you chase that original high and you can never quite get there. And that's usually why people overdose is because they try to get back to that original high and they can't get there. And so they just keep taking more and more and more until eventually that thing owns you. And so you can build, you can do all kinds of building projects and it doesn't have to be the pleasures of the flesh. It can be literal building projects. You can make towers and buildings. Do you remember 
Uh, back in Genesis chapter 11, what did the people of Babel attempt to do? They attempted to build a tower. And they said that that tower is going to reach all the way up to heaven. We're going to make it so high that perhaps we could confront God or communicate directly with him. And we'll build a tower. We'll build an impressive building. But in the end, it was nothing. In the end, it was just shaking one's fist at God. When Jesus was in Jerusalem and he began to interact with the religious leaders of his day, he said, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This is Matthew 21, 42. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing its fruit. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Ultimately, Jesus will say in an exchange in Matthew 23, 38, behold to the religious leadership of his day, your house your house, not the Lord's house, your house is left to you desolate. That means empty. And that's a word that's picked up from 1 Samuel where uh, there's the death of Eli, the high priest, and the Ark of the Covenant has been taken by the Philistines. And the Philistines heard the Ark of the Covenant was coming into the area, and they were fearful. And they said, this is the God who defeated the Egyptians, and this is the God who gives Israel victory. But Israel was not walking with the Lord, and Eli's sons were corrupt, and God allowed Israel to be defeated by the Philistines. And when Eli heard the news, he was an old man. Remember, he heard the ark of the Lord had been captured. He fell back, and it broke his neck, and he, he died. And his daughter-in-law produced an offspring, a baby born right on the heels of that. And she named him, as she died in childbirth, Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel. And Jesus, picking up that theme in Matthew 23, said, your house, not the Lord's house, because this is not the Lord's house. You've made it a den of robbers or thieves. This house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've turned it into your house. And guess what? Your house is left to you desolate because you won't receive me Therefore, this house means nothing. You could be impressed with the buildings. You could be impressed with the architecture. You could say, boy, Herod did a great job restoring this temple over many years, but it's desolate without my presence. Churches and religious buildings and homes and riches mean nothing unless God is in the midst. Amen? Amen. You can have everything, not just own a city block, not just own an island. You could own the whole world. And Jesus said, it would be a shame because if you did and forfeited your soul, that would be a shame. But what do we teach our generation? That the most important things are things. And so people pursue things only to find vanity. Now, if you have blessings, and I'm sure that just about everybody in this room can count many, many blessings just living in this country alone. And that those blessings are filled with the Lord. That, that makes all the difference in the world. You can do it with the Lord and he can bless the work of your hands and you'll have more 
to be grateful for. Somebody said the other day we can practice thanks living. How, how do you like that? Thanks living. That's cool, isn't it? I want to be a man who practices thanks living. But also that you could give it away. That your blessings are not just about you hoarding them. You ever seen some of those hoarder TV shows? Ooh-wee. Yes. Some of you are like, oh, man, I have a few hoarding tendencies. I, <laughs> look, I, I get it. But here's the thing. You're not going to take any of it with you. Never seen a, a U-Haul being pulled by a hearse, have you? The question was asked, you know, how much did he take with him? Nothing. Naked I came into the world. Naked I'm going to leave it. Even if you put me in a nice suit, the suit will deteriorate along with the body. But if Job could say, naked I came into the world, naked I'm going to leave it, blessed be the name of the Lord. I know that my Redeemer lives. That makes all the difference in the world. Oh, the disciples were so excited to show Jesus the impressive buildings of the temple. They were pointing them out. Hey, look over here, Lord, look over here. And Jesus said, Matthew 24, 2, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. Do you know, from the time that Jesus spoke those words in 40 years, that temple was destroyed to the ground. That's a prophecy, by the way, that Jesus gave, one of many prophecies that he spoke. And 40 years later, that temple didn't have one stone left upon another. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And in the Old Testament, when you read through the, the books of the Old Testament and the warnings of the prophets, when the people would say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they, the temple was so important, and it even is today to a group of Jewish people to restore that temple. But if the Lord's not in the house, if it's Ichabod, if the glory has departed, the buildings can be impressive but mean nothing. And God finally said to Israel, you know what, if you continue to defy me, and to commit idolatry even in these courts, then Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and destroy your temple. I'm leaving. Nebuchadnezzar can have his way. Do you guys remember when we studied Zechariah 9 on Palm Sunday, for those of you who were here? And I took you through the prophecy, and we looked at Alexander the Great fulfilling that prophecy throughout time, uh, coming in the 300s BC. Go back and listen to that one. There's a verse I want to point out to you, and here's what the Lord says. Zechariah 9, 8. He says, look, I'm going to protect this house and the Lord gave the high priest of that time a dream, and he gave Alexander the Great a dream, not documented by Josephus, the historian, and essentially protected his house from Alexander the Great, the Grecian leader, destroying the temple, destroying that area. If the Lord's in it, he can protect your house. But if he's not in it, everything that you do is in vain. And you can spend your whole life trying to protect your stuff. But you're going to leave it to somebody else. You are. I know that's sometimes hard to take, but you're going to leave it to somebody else. My motorcycle? <laughs> no, not that. Can I ride it up into heaven? Nope. You ain't taking it. So the more that we can just release things to God, the better, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain.
unless the Lord guards the city. Verse one, the watchman keeps awake in vain. There's a lot of, a lot of people who can't sleep. You may be one of them. Insomniacs. Nate, could you turn on the air up here? Don't give them any. Just give it to me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> are you guys warm or is it just me? You guys okay? Some of you are warm. Can you do 71 over here and 69 over? No. And, you know, insomnia, staying awake, um, is a problem. And look, my heart goes out to you if you wrestle with it because it's not, it's not always connected to one thing. But, you know, when our mind gets racing, usually what, our, what does our mind race to? What about this? What about that? What about this? What, this could, and this could happen. And over there, and what, what, you know, and all of a sudden, sleep escapes you. And oftentimes, we, we are kept awake by worry, let's face it. And sometimes it could be the immediate prospects of the next day or the next week or whatever we're dealing with. And the cool thing is that Take a peek at the end of verse two. Well, let's just read verse two. It says, it's vain for you to rise up early. And you can think of here the watchman, but you can also think of just someone just who gets up really early, retires late, gets up early, works hard, eats the bread of painful labors every day. Look, hard work is, is uh, lauded in the Bible. It's applauded in the Bible, but not if you're destroying yourself. For God gives to his beloved by the way, the church is called the beloved of God over and over again in the New Testament. He gives to us even when we what? When we sleep. Oh, praise the Lord. You mean I could be napping and he is blessing? Oh, yeah. This gives my naps a whole new meaning. The Lord can bless while I'm snoozing? Yep. You know why? Because he don't need you. Now, he works with our contributions, no doubt. And when we're walking with the Lord, he wants us to do that. But look, you could be sleeping and he blesses because he's sovereign. And so would to God that we could say, oh Lord, help me just to lay things at your feet before I go to sleep so I can rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. He can bless while you rest. Come on. It's true, because that's how good he is. Do you remember when Jesus was in the ship and the storm kicked up and Jesus was sleeping? And he was sleeping on the pillow. And they said, how can you sleep? Don't you see what's happening to us? Any of you guys do that to your spouse? Honey, 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 honey. Were you awake? <laughs> I was like, what, what? I would like you to suffer with me. Tonight, <laughs> right? Can't sleep. Now, some of you have issues with the person next to you who's a little musical in the evening hours. We understand some of those issues. You don't feel blessed. <laughs> you got you to gotta beat them to go to sleep or there's no blessing <laughs> except in the living room. Yeah. We won't go there. We're trying to build up your families tonight, not divide you guys. You see, it's vain, vain, vain 
If you build it without him, your earthly endeavors without God, if you try to protect them without him, if you get up really, really early and go to bed really, really late and eat the bread of painful labors or sorrows every single day, but God, if he's in the midst, he'll give you rest. He'll bless even when you sleep. He'll bless your efforts too, no doubt. And the opposite of vanity is what? Fullness. Vanity is emptiness and worthlessness. But Jesus said, I came to give you life and that to the full. Do you know the Lord wants you to be full and blessed, not empty and stressed? Full and blessed. Now, that's not going to happen 24-7. This is not about one of those things, just fake it till you make it. You hear people say that, right? How you doing? Blessed. <laughs> Don't do that. But look, if you're in communion with the Lord, walking with the Lord, supernaturally, he begins to just do these things in your life. Amen? You don't even have to try to figure it out. He gives a peace that passes understanding. You don't have to figure it out. You just need to receive it. So let the Lord build. Let the Lord bless. Now, one of the ways that he blesses is in verse three, and it says these words, behold, children are a gift. If you have ESV, New King James, a heritage of the Lord, the fruit of the womb is a reward. Now, one of the ways that God blesses is with family, and this is what we would call normative in life. Most people end up marrying and having children, but it's not necessarily across the board. You could have the gift of singleness, and it doesn't mean that you're not blessed if you can't have children either. For whatever reason, God may sovereignly have that for you, and again, I, I don't have all the answers to that. But when children do come, they are a heritage or a gift of the Lord. They come from him as a blessing from him. And would to God that our society would see that, especially children in the womb who should be in the most protected holy space that exists on the planet. I don't care what the excuses are for our abortion industry or our politicians who try to justify this and say it's between a woman and her doctor. And this is not condemnation. This is just biblical reason here because we've all made our mistakes. But let me just say to you, if when a sperm and an egg come together, which all, I think most, every scientist that you would interview says life begins at conception, then whatever excuse you have, economics, you know, you name it, there's, there's absolutely no excuse to kill a child in the womb or otherwise. If life begins at conception, then that baby is to be guarded and valued from that very moment. There's no excuse. I don't care what excuse you come up with. Once you've defined what it is, a baby, which life begins at conception, there's no excuse to take that life. And people have said, you know, the talking heads of our culture, well, you know what? Uh, you take care of my baby. Well, there's a lot of parents who would adopt your child if that's the case. But that should not be the reason to give you to take that child out. That's just ridiculous. That's not logic. It's not science. 
We could just put the Bible aside for a second and say that's not logical, scientific, nor is it even compassionate. The fruit of the womb is a reward. You could say this is a sign of divine favor. So it's a reward for what, you might ask? Well, I think the way to take the language is that it's the favor of God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Whenever I've had the chance to dedicate a child up here, and I've had many uh, privilege of doing that, oftentimes it's a little baby, and we're always praying that the baby will be well-behaved, and I always pray that it will not you know, uh, regurgitate anything that it's recently uh, taken in. <laughs> and, uh, but I've had some neat moments with children up here where I will look in the eyes of a little baby and I'll begin to pray. And, you know, sometimes they want to steal the microphone and sometimes it's just a... And there's a little, you know, uh, exchange going on and I start to do my exchange too. Anyway, a little baby talk. But 1 Samuel 2.5 says, those who were full hire themselves out for bed, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. That's a verse that is in Hannah's song. And it's, it's the idea of if you had seven sons, this is uh, Ruth 4.15. It says, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. And those of you who are familiar with the book of Job know that Job had seven sons. And in the ancient world, he had three daughters as well. In the ancient world, if you owned a farm and you had seven sons and three daughters, you were seen as a blessed man because they could take care of what you had. And oftentimes, your immediate employees were your children. And so they would go out and work the land, or they, uh, as you get older, the presence of your, namely your sons in this case, could protect the property, could uh, you know, do business for you, could represent you in the town, would bear your name. You know, oftentimes uh, we, we see as we read genealogies that the only way a person was known was who they were the son of, right? And so that was a, that was a very important familial link. I am the son of this person. That's how you were known in that culture. Children are a gift of the Lord. Sons and daughters are a sign of divine favor. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen? Like arrows, verse 4, we just have two verses left. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Now, the word like is what we call a simile. It's giving you a kind of an example to hold on to. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Now, in ancient warfare, that bow and arrow was something used in the sword, and so today it would be like a gun. But in the ancient world, if you had a bow and arrow, you would pull back and you would look to hit your target with the arrow. And you would send the arrow out to do its job, if you will. You would be responsible as the person shooting the arrow to pick out the target and fire. And then the arrow would, because it was created to do so, at your direction would hit the target. Parents, grandparents. The arrows are formed by God, fearfully and wonderfully made in the womb. They are then put into our quiver. Here's the biblical picture. We pull them, and it is our job to fire them 
accurately. It is our job to direct them accurately. This is the biblical picture. It is our job to give them a biblical worldview. It is our job to say to them, this is right and this is wrong. As we walk by the way, we instill in them the values. We show them the footprints. We say, this is the way, walk therein. Follow me as I follow Christ. Everybody with me? We send them out. We equip them and then fire them into the culture so that they can make a difference, so that they can hit the target so that they can uh, do God's will when we can no longer maybe do everything that we used to do. Everybody with me? This is the biblical picture. This is the responsibility. And you only have them for so long in the quiver, so to speak, and then they go out. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray some more that you have shaped them and formed them and taught them in the way that they should go. This is the image here in verse 4. They must be skillfully guided by a warrior who knows the Lord. And so we have to wage some spiritual warfare. We have to learn how to guide them properly. And it's not an easy endeavor, I will submit to you. I mentioned to you I have three grown sons, uh, but I learned a lot as I was going. And and I didn't have uh, really a stable father figure. My, My uh, biological father left when I was four. I wouldn't have known him had I passed him on the street. My second stepdad, uh, who came into my life when I was about eight or nine years old, was a seemingly wonderful guy. His name was Bill. Uh, he was a salesman for a tile company, taught me how to bowl, uh, came to my baseball games, but turned out to be a bank robber. Uh, He was actually known as the Dr. Pepper Bandit. He would go into convenience stores, buy a can of Dr. Pepper, and he had a revolver behind it. He was holding up liquor stores. That's why I was getting all this cool sports equipment. He had the money was flowing. Pastor Michael's uh, early sporting equipment was what they call hot. (laughs) Yeah. Ignorance was bliss. Uh, And then one day, uh, he came home and he told my mom, hey, let's go to Vegas. And my mom was not that spontaneous type of person, but they ended up going. He came back. FBI showed up at our door. Bill had shaving cream on his face. He was arrested by the FBI in front of us, whisked off to jail. My mom sat down at the kitchen table. They showed her photographs of Bill holding up the, link, the local bank. Dad number two, bye-bye. <laughs> My mom later remarried, and she was married to Chuck for a long time. Uh, He has recently passed away. But that was later in life, and that was a bit bumpy because he brought four children with our two, and I will just tell you, it was not the Brady Bunch. Here's a story. (laughs) Never mind. And so it wasn't easy to navigate because I didn't know how to do it right. I had seen the instability and the bumps and bruises of arrows sometimes misguided. Now, I had my mom for stability, and she's awesome. A grandma who's always praying for us, a grandfather that was present. But still, as a young man, I was angry. Honestly, I was angry. I didn't even half the time know what I was mad at. And I went into the gym, and I played baseball to get my anger out. I was going to prove somebody wrong. I didn't even know who it was. 
And I was like that arrow in flight that didn't know what the mark was. How do you hit the mark? What is the mark? What is the bullseye? And you know, here's the cool thing. Torah, law in Hebrew, means to hit the mark. <laughs> and I started to discover God's word, and I couldn't get enough, and I began to drink it in, and I watched other godly men who were in the first church that I had ever known, and they, I watched their example, and I learned from them, and this is what you need to do if you didn't have a great example. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. And look, if that time has passed you, then look for ways to redeem it in other ways. Take, take on a spiritual son or daughter. Uh, you might have grandchildren. You might have influence somewhere else. There's always, God's a God of second chances, amen? amen? He's a God of redemption. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, full of children. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. They'll even be a support for you, a protection for you in the gate where they would discuss ideas and hold trials and things like that. Their children are a blessing of the Lord. Doesn't mean they're easy. And for those of you who are either new parents or you're considering children or whatever, it ain't gonna be easy. Marriage and parenting will be two of the toughest things that you will ever do. Can I get a witness? <laughs> and you'll have your moments when you're like, a blessing from the Lord. If I could reach him, <laughs> quiet. <laughs> you ain't acting like a blessing. But you know what? I look back, and even through the bumps and the tears, we learned lessons. And we navigated life together. And that's really what marriage is about, too. It's learning to love somebody through the thick and thin and the ups and downs. It's God's love. Ultimately, I wanted to leave you with these words from, this is Hebrews 3, and it's comparing Jesus to Moses, and Jesus is superior to Moses. And it says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He's building his house. And you know what? You are his house. You're his family. He loves you. He's giving you metaphors like, I'm your father. You're my bride. I love you. I'm going to see you through, through the bumps and bruises, through the ups and downs. You are my people. I dwell among my people. I've made you my holy temple. Amen? And he will, faith, he will be faithful <clears throat> to finish what he started. Father, thank you for your word in Psalm 127. We are grateful that we had this time to spend together. There's much more that can be said, and we'll tackle the next psalm and dig out a little bit more about marriage and family. Thank you for the folks that are here and those who are watching, those who may watch this later. Thank you, Father, for the upcoming movie night and the class. We need all the help we can get. We need one another in this venture of raising children. Thank you for our Sunday school teachers who faithfully pour into our kids. Thank you for our youth team upstairs. There's not a lot of them, but the ones that are up there, along with Pastor Matthew, are so faithful. And I can't help but think of Willie and Angie and Wendy and others who faithfully serve up there and have done so for years and have really shaped our teenagers. 
And, you know, when, when kids are in the teen years, we need help, Lord. We need other people who are investing and supporting and reinforcing things that we are saying. And thank you for our great youth team. So many people that have uh, made a difference in my own kids' lives. I praise you for that. And I pray that you'll give everybody hope here that, you know, even if we feel like we failed, thank you for second chances and for redeeming situations that we thought maybe could never be rebuilt. Lord, if you build the house, it will be full. Even if years have gone by, you can restore. So give that person hope who may be a little bit overwhelmed with the thoughts that, you know, it didn't all go the way that they, they had hoped. I pray that you'd restore the broken pieces, restore the prodigals that some are praying for right now. And Lord, thank you for loving us so wonderfully and so faithfully. Well, if you don't know God as your father, I'm not gonna give you the prayer right now because I don't think there's a perfect prayer, but I would just say, run to him and say, Lord, be my father, be my God. Jesus, I believe in you. Thank you that you died on the cross for me came to rescue me. Thank you for your resurrection from the dead. Be my God, be my Father, be my Savior, be my Lord. Father, just thank you for this time we've shared. It's precious. We appreciate it, and we love you in Jesus' name.